Amen. Lord, let's, we, we come to you knowing that there's only one person who can unlock Scripture. We say, teach us, precious Savior, and you do that through your word. And we appeal to your spirit who alone enlightens us and enlightens our mind to understand the truth. And so we ask you as our Savior and as our Lord to teach us this morning, to give us a sense of Psalm 77 so that it becomes our words and our experience and it becomes a quiver uh, in, in our quiver, an arrow in our quiver to use at the appropriate time that we would not only have a sense of the truth and what it means, but the feeling that comes behind it and the passion in the heart of Asaph, God, we appeal to you, teach us according to your word. We love you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. What is anxiety? I think you all know, you need to answer it. We, we all experience anxiety. Anxiety is a fear response when reality does not justify that fear response. Anxiety comes unannounced, uh, it's, it's uninvited. It's worrying about things that will likely never come to pass. It, it has its realm in the hypothetical and it's obsessed with the question, what if? And if your mind begins to search and ask this question over and over and over again, you know you're experiencing anxiety. And the problem with anxiety is that it's very difficult uh, to turn it on, but turning it off is not so easy, is it? That's the problem. And that's why many of us experience not only anxiety, but panic anxiety, because it comes on quickly. And it's not just anxiety, but we often experience anxiety attacks, because that feels like how it comes on. It comes on unannounced, uninvited, and it attacks us and such that its symptoms are so severe, maybe Jeff can confirm this, that when you, many people go to the ER confusing an anxiety attack with a heart attack. Because this is something that, it, it's not a little thing to undergo anxiety. And if you turn to Psalm 77, you'll see that this is something that was experienced by the people who wrote the Bible. Uh, the drummer of the praise band of Israel was no stranger to this sensation. And you see his example and how he dealt with his mind and his soul and his psyche as it began to multiply unhelpful thoughts. And you're going to see that in the end, these are thoughts that were, were never true at all. So one of the beauties of the Bible, one of the beauties of Scripture is uh, as it relates to God's design for this world and how we experience this world is what we call human commonality which is just a fancy way of saying that nothing has changed between the first century and the 21st century. The feelings and the anxieties that you feel are the same feelings and anxieties that the early church and the scriptural writers felt. There's, we didn't evolve past that, right? The struggles that you experience and the temptations and the anxieties are the same thing that they felt, which means that the Psalms are especially significant for us because these are people who are undergoing the same struggles and temptations that we struggle with. And the feelings of anxiety that Asaph has in Psalm 77, you have felt. And you can relate to him laying on his bed at night, can't get comfortable, thoughts multiplying in an unhelpful and unhealthy way. And according to the National Institute of Mental Health, they say, quote, occasional anxiety is a normal part of life, end quote. And that's because, actually, anxiety proves that your mind, as well as every other aspect of your body and your soul is under the influence of the fall. Anxiety proves that. And, and so we have occasional anxiety. You, you shouldn't lament as if something strange were happening to you. Uh, anxiety is part and parcel of human existence. And this is something that we can't avoid because our mind is subject to the fall. 
And ever since Adam, this is something that we've struggled with. And, and God knows that, which is why in his mercy, he gives us Psalm 77 as a psalm for the troubled. And if you ever are struggling with anxiety and you're awake in the night, this is what I want to permanently associate in your mind. Psalm 77 is for sleepless nights. This is where you go. This is for you. This is for the man or the woman who finds themselves asking, what if? That's what the psalm is for. And you see your own experience lived out in Asaph because what happens when you have anxiety at night? You can't sleep. Anxiety is deterrent to sleep, and it always has been. And so that's why Psalm 77, the entire psalm occurs at night with Asaph wrestling in his bed. And the psalm is a kind of battle of the spirit of the mind and where he's wrestling in the dark for any kind of psychological or emotional or spiritual relief. And as the church, 3,000 years later, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we get perspective and how he found relief in that moment. Read with me Psalm 77 all the way through beginning in verse one. Asaph writes, I cry aloud to God aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I can consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm have redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world and the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is a lament psalm. If you've been with us in our study of the psalm, it seems like every psalm in this section is a lament psalm. It's all people crying out and burying and exposing their soul before God and whoever will listen. And we've seen psalms that were national lament, meaning this is all of God's people that are praying this psalm together for things that have happened to them collectively. And you come to this psalm, this is a personal lament. A man just crying out to God with his hands raised out. He says, my, my hands were not wearied and being stretched out all night. He's praying all night in his bed, uncomfortable, lamenting the individual experience that, that he has. And the commentators are going to point out that this psalm, this song, this cry doesn't fit neatly into any form of Hebrew poetry that was in existence at this time. And I think that's in part beautiful because that's some of the best poetry that's ever been written doesn't fit well into standard forms, does it? Sometimes you need to say things and it doesn't fit neatly into somebody's existing box. And that's exactly where Asaph is. He needs to bear his soul in a way that doesn't fit into anybody else's category. 
There's no stylistic flair here. There's a few verses here, especially in verse 1, where he's crying out urgently to God, and he demands a response. This is the kind of cry that, that needs a response. And he says in the original, literally, verse 1 says, My voice to God, and I will cry out. The rest of that line says again, my voice to God, and he will hear me. He must hear me. That's how it reads, and it's important to note that this word cry out is giving a nod back to the Exodus. It's the same word used of, of God's people as they are crying out in their bondage to slavery. Exodus 3, verse 7 says, I have seen the affliction of my people. This is God speaking, and he says, and I have heard their cry. The same word as Asaph as he cries out in the night in his day of trouble. Verse 9 in Exodus 3 says, Behold, the cry of the people Israel has come to me. And when you cry out to God in the night, he's a God who hears you. He's a God who he, he might not respond immediately, right? The teacher is silent during the test, but he's a God who hears and his glory is there. And like a faithful mother with her baby, God hears you. And he cannot not feel and not respond to that cry. He hears you, and he will move in his time and in his way. And the emphasis both in the Psalms and the Exodus on this crying out is emphasizing the voice of the one that's crying out. And it's also emphasizing to whom that voice is crying out. There's, there's a cry that must be heard, and the voice is directed to God. Even in lament, and even here where he can't sleep, he's uncomfortable, God is seemingly absent from him, he still directs his voice to God. And the word cry out again, it's, it's used in the Psalms and the Exodus, but it's used outside of that as well. And it's used to, to represent extreme anguish. Those, the, the deepest, darkest night of the soul, that's what this word is for. It comes in 2 Kings 4.1 where a woman has been recently widowed and, and she cries out to Elisha in her pain and in her distress, saying, your servant, my husband, is dead. She cried out. That's the only word that was fitting for this kind of situation. 2 Kings 6.26, a woman, as she is dying of starvation, calls out, cries aloud, help, O Lord, my king. This is a, a plea for help. This is a desperate cry for help, and it needs to be heard as that. And it's a, it's a cry that must be heard. And you see in verse 2 why Asaph's crying out. You see he's using language reserved for the miserable, but now you get a little bit of insight into why he's miserable. It's the day of his trouble. Let's read it here. It says his abode, oh, sorry, that's last week. It says, in the, in the day my, of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying, and my soul refuses to be comforted. He's in the day of trouble. And this is a phrase, if you read through the Psalms, you're going to see it happens over and over and over again. There's, there's always a day of trouble. This is an, a, a regular occurrence, and sometimes the day of trouble is attached to a specific situation where you get to learn this is what the day of trouble is like. But more often than not, the day of trouble is never specified. And that's what happens in our psalm today. It doesn't tell you what his day of trouble is, and the point is it doesn't matter because you're not supposed to weigh in on, you know, well, he's in the day of trouble because it's his own fault. It's his own circumstances that brought us here. This is, he deserved this. He's getting what was coming to him. It, it, that is irrelevant. The point is, he's undergoing trouble, and you get to see his heart exposed and the feelings and the emotions and the words that he uses to respond. And just like we said with Psalm 76, 
It's unspecified because this psalm is supposed to become your psalm in its words, your words. If it specified the day of trouble, you might think it's irrelevant to your situation, but it's supposed to become yours. And so it doesn't matter why you end up in trouble. It doesn't matter how you end up in trouble. The situation is less important than the experience of desperation and distress. And so you see Asaph sprawled out on his bed, crying out and seeking the Lord, and he cannot find him. Crying out for response and being answered with the silence of God. And pointing out here in verse two, you see that Asaph is doing everything that he's supposed to do. You say, well, what do you do as a Christian when things are hard? What are you supposed to do when you're going through a miserable experience? And the Christian answer is, well, you're supposed to pray and you're supposed to read your Bible and you're supposed to meditate on holy things and keep your mind focused on the things that are above. And that's absolutely true. And that's exactly what Asaph is doing. But the problem is, it seems like God is not answering his prayer. He knows what to do. He postures himself for prayer. It says his hands are stretched out without wearying. This was the ancient version of you getting on your knees. This is a prayer posture, hands up, praying to the Lord. And for us, it might be you with your face on your wood floor or your face on the carpet, begging God to relieve you of your trouble. This, this is his expression of that. It's the same posture that comes in Lamentations 2.19, almost the same verse, almost the same words. It says, arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. You lift up your hands to pray to God. He's doing what he's supposed to. He reads the scripture. He prays. He seeks the Lord. It says that he's focused on meditation. Verse 3, he remembers God, and he moans, and he meditates, and he faints, and his hands are raised in prayer. Verse 3, it's going to say he's remembering first, and he's meditating. This is, again, what are you supposed to do when things are hard as a Christian? You, you remember the Lord and his goodness, and you meditate, and he does that. And as he does it, he moans, and his spirit faints. And remembering and meditating is important because these two words follow each other in the same order over and over again as you go through the psalm. In verse 3, he remembers and he meditates. Verse 6, he remembers and he meditates. Verses 11 and 12, he remembers and he remembers and he meditates. And so think with me as we move through the psalm that whatever he's doing in verse 3, he's doing in verse 6 as his experience changes and his perspective changes. And whatever he's doing in verse 6, he's doing in verses 11 and 12. He's remembering and he's meditating, and these words coupled together, I think, is indicating that he's doing something more than just simply remembering the exodus or giving nod to things that are happening in the past. This is a, an intense reflection. The, the translation could be pondering the works of God, thinking through them and, and giving mind to them. And he meditates, and it makes him sick because he knows God is supposed to be faithful. And he knows deep down that God is faithful. But the problem is, God is meeting him with silence. And in the day of his trouble, God doesn't seem like he's being faithful to him right now. And so he meditates and he's sick. If, if we were to listen to, to the cultural wisdom in our own day, if he were to fast forward 3,000 years and do some Googling in our culture about how you could find relief from your trouble and experience sleep, what would he find out? I think first, the most unhelpful advice would be you could just medicate yourself. That's where a lot of people just say, I'm gonna turn to drugs and alcohol and just punt this issue. I'm not gonna worry about facing my trouble. And 
Uh, some would say the wisdom of our culture would be, well, you just need to relax, right? A bubble bath is the answer. When you're in distress, make yourself ready for sleep, unwind, relax. Uh, make sure your phone isn't plugged in in your bedroom, and, and this will help, right? Until you have an anxiety attack, right? Until your mind is multiplying in the night and is taking a bubble bath particularly helpful. No, it's not helpful. And then the, the culture will say you should meditate. Put your mind on, on helpful thoughts. And if it was that easy, then Asaph would just do it. The problem is all of Psalm 77 is one long meditation. And he's stuck in a rut because his meditation is, is going great. The problem is it's all negative, isn't it? He can't get his mind to focus on any of the positive things of God. And so he moved to the next thing. What can we do? I think our culture would say you could count sheep. That's kind of a last-ditch effort. And ironically, if you want to skip to the end in verse 20, this is basically the biblical advice that we're given. You count sheep. You can skip ahead. In verse 20, you can cheat. And it says he's going to find rest for his body and his mind and his heart and his soul by counting sheep and counting on his faithful shepherd. So no, for him, none of these things, especially meditation, is not the issue. He's meditating great. The problem is that he's concerned, and he's overly concerned. That's what the word in verse 3, meditation, means. It means to concern yourself with something. Very general word. And he's concerning himself, and the issue is that he's overly concerned with his own trouble, and his mind is running, and he cannot turn it off. That's why it says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Verse 3 records that something is desperately wrong with Asaph. And this is the inverted Christian life. This is exactly the opposite of what's supposed to happen when you meditate on God and on, on his glory. When you remember him, you're not supposed to moan. Moan's the same word we, we looked at last week when we said that the breakers of the ocean were breaking against the cliffs and the foaming of the sea, it moans. That's the same word that's, that's used here. He's pouring out words, and, and it should never be this way. That when you meditate on the Lord of glory, you leave any way but refreshed. But he says, I'm in the presence of God, and instead of getting excited, my spirit moans. When you see somebody that, you is, that are pleasant to be around, and somebody that you like to be around, the second you look at them, their eyebrows should raise, and their, their pupils should dilate, and their heart rate should, should get higher. And you say, why? Because you're in the presence of somebody that you find pleasant. And he says, and he's in the presence of God, and he moans. His heart rate increases, but it's out of dread because he doesn't delight in being around him. And, and this should be for Christians. You, if you have a day off, I don't know what it looks like for you to get to go spend an entire day meditating, contemplating God. If it's a fishing boat where you throw out your line and you pull out your Bible and pray, that should be heaven on earth for you. And you should leave refreshed and ready to storm hell's gates right, for the kingdom of God. Or a coffee, if you have a coffee shop, and eight hours of a Bible and a set of highlighters. Right, for some of you, there is nothing higher than this. And here you have Asaph, Bible open, highlighter out, dreading. No refreshed spirit, but fainting. And life circumstances like this sometimes reveal our fallen condition. Because as much as we would like to be refreshed by God, it doesn't always turn out that way. And it reveals our, our fallen nature. And sometimes the trouble blocks out God's glory and our goodness from our eyes. In the same way that in a solar eclipse moves and, the, and the, the moon blocks out the glory of the sun from our eyes, this is the picture I want you to forever have in your mind for Psalm 77. Trouble moves in the way and all seems dark, 
but it's for a moment. Because the second the trouble moves out of the way, you're gonna see that God is just as glorious as he has always been. He's eternal, he's unchanging, he's always been good. And this, that's the structure of this psalm. There's, there's nine verses in the beginning. I wanna, sh- I wanna show you the structure is so simple. There's nine verses in the beginning that is Asaph meditating on his trouble. And you can see the, the eclipse coming in and beginning to turn everything dark. And the darkest portion of the psalm comes in verses seven to nine. This is where it gets to his, his thoughts multiply to the point that he can almost not bear it anymore. And he resolves, and there's a resolution in verse 10 to meditate on something else. And you'll see, and from that moment on, the trouble begins to be pushed out of the way, and God's glory, again, is revealed to him. This is the psalm, nine verses of meditation on trouble and sorrow, ten verses on meditation on God's past faithfulness, moving you from trouble to trust. Psalm 77. And as we move through, the theme of trouble continues in verses four to nine as he begins to, he begins to explain his circumstances. What's happening? Verse four, it says, God is holding his eyelids open. He, says, he acknowledges, he says, God, it's God that does it. He says, I'm so troubled that I cannot sleep. And we've said it, anxiety is the great deterrent to sleep. It's impossible to sleep. It's nearly impossible to sleep. And he says again, I am troubled. And I want you to see this is a different word than the word trouble he used in verse two. Because back in verse two, trouble is synonymous with anxiety. It's distress or it's anxiety. But when you look at the word trouble in verse four, it's a very narrow definition and it means trouble in sleeplessness. Trouble because of dreams. A very rare word, a very specific word. It was used of Pharaoh back in Genesis. You remember Joseph is called to Pharaoh because Pharaoh couldn't sleep. He was troubled because of the dream that he had, and he was so troubled that he couldn't fall back asleep until Joseph comes, interprets the dream for him, and he has relief. It's the same word in Daniel used of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, same situation, had a dream. God kept his eyelids open. He couldn't sleep. He was troubled. And Daniel comes and interprets the dream for him and brings that reprieve And so this is what happens when you're troubled and you're stuck in your bed and the lights are off and you can't get comfortable and God holds your eyelids open and you can't shake the negative thoughts. Verse five to six, explain this. He says his meditation wearies him because he begins to consider the days of old and the years long ago, years when God proved himself faithful to him. He proved himself faithful to his people and he proved himself faithful to Asaph and he proved himself faithful to his forefathers. And you say, well, why is that such a bad thing? Why is it bad that Asaph is contemplating all of God's goodness in the past? Well, the problem is because he's comparing it to the lack of goodness that he's experiencing in the present. And I think this happens with you as well. It's it's surely happened to me when, you know, I've prayed in desperation before in a situation just like this. And God intervened and, and intervened in an amazing nearly miraculous way, and he was so good to me, and he was so faithful to me, and now I'm in almost the same circumstance. I'm praying to God in the same way, and and where is he? And you begin to compare this circumstance to that circumstance, and you say, is is God less faithful now? Did I I sin in some way that he's he's not going to, to answer me in my moment of trouble? And there's a disconnect between the goodness of God in the past and the seeming lack of goodness in the present. That's what he's experiencing. And he moves on, and his memory and his meditations continue downward on a negative trajectory until you get to verses 7 to 9. And this is the height of the emotion and the, the, the darkest point in the night for him. And he begins to wonder to himself, what if my worst fears have come true? 
What if this nightmare that I'm experiencing laying on my bed is a reality? What if the worst case scenario for me is my experience and my reality now? And he asked these questions because Christians ask questions and we're concerned 170 times. It's hard sometimes to count. Best we can tell, 170 questions are asked in the Psalms, which is significant if you remember that there's 150 Psalms and 170 questions asked. And five of them come in our passage today because this book is filled and the psalm is filled with our questions and our concerns. And in rapid succession, five questions come. Every verse in verses seven to nine is a question. And he asks, follow with me. Verse seven, he says, will the Lord spurn forever? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? And my response to anybody, if you ever hit this point, you should have already picked up your phone and called a church member. Because if you, if, if you are at this point, you, you need your church. This is what we're here for. If your mind gets so far in the dark, it doesn't matter if it's 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., pick up your phone and call a church member. And if you would voice the same questions to them that you've been voicing to God, they can bring you perspective. Because none of these are true. All of these have never been true. If you asked a church member, what if God has departed from me? It's 3 a.m., they're gonna have that perspective and they're gonna say, of course not. God's name is Emmanuel. His name is God with us. He cannot depart from you. He will not take his spirit away from you. He's never gonna leave you or forsake you. And they'll ask you this question in return, what if, I'll give you a what if in return, what if God is as close and, and near to you now as he has ever been? And they'll correct your thinking. And you can ask another question. What if God has forgotten to be gracious to me? And I think if you're kept up on your sleep and you have good and proper perspective and life's going as it should be, you're going to say, well, that's a, that's a dumb question. God's immutable character includes his graciousness. He can't not be gracious. He is gracious. And you're going to say the only thing that God is willing to forget about you is your sin. That's the perspective that the church can bring, and they're gonna ask you a question in return. What if two things are true at once for you? What if your situation is really difficult and at the same time, God is infinitely gracious to you? And that's the perspective you need, and all of a sudden, you can feel getting it off your chest and talking with another believer, you can feel your anxiety lift. It might not go away, and the trouble might not go away, but your, your trouble gets lost in the glory and the majesty of the one who loves you. And so whereas in the beginning of the psalm in verses one to nine, he concerns himself with his circumstances, there's a resolution that comes in verse 10. This is the hinge on which the entire psalm turns. It changes his perspective. And then all the verses after are a new medi meditation that are concerning himself with God's past faithfulness. He resolves, he says, I'm going to force my mind to think about God's past faithfulness to me. I'm gonna force it, a rut about God's goodness. And he forcefully directs his meditation. And instead of focusing on himself and his trouble, he says, I'm gonna focus on the glory that I can see, the glory that I can remember in this moment. And he says, I'm gonna focus on God. And we say, looking at this, this is probably why God held his eyelids open the whole time because he wants him to wrestle and to end up on the other side to declare his beauty and his goodness. And so the pronouns shift from the beginning to the end. No longer is it I and me. He says, it's you. 
your wonders of old, your work, your mighty deeds, your way. You are the God of wonders. They were your lightnings, your way through the sea, your footprints, your path, your hand, on and on and on. It is, it's about God. Amen. What is? Everything is about God. He shifts his perspective. And this teaches us how we are to approach God and our distress, does it not? It's not about us and our trouble. God, the trouble will go away the trouble will, will fade in comparison to him and his glory. And so verse 11, moving on for the first time, the psalmist calls God by his personal name, Yahweh. I think of Psalm 63 as he, be, he says, I'm going to remember, O God, you are my God. He says, that's going to be my meditation. And so he's going to remember the Lord's extraordinary feats of deliverance rather than his feelings of despair. And so he calls God by his personal name, Yahweh. And you can read through this. This is a study you can do on your own time. Look at all the names that are given to God in the psalm. Verses 1 to 3, he's Elohim. And in 16, he's Elohim. He's twice called Adonai, which translates Lord. He calls him El, the generic name for God. He calls him God Most High. But it's in verse 11, I think after committing himself to the proper perspective, again giving a nod to the Exodus, he calls him Yahweh. And I think this goes back, even the verses we read earlier, Exodus 3, 7 and 3, 9, God hears the crying out of his people. And then what does God do in verse 15? Moses asks him, who am I going to tell these people sent me? And he says, you tell them I am has sent me. You tell them Yahweh has sent me. And there's the resolution. Another nod back to the Exodus. And so if, if these two things haven't evoked the memory of slavery in Egypt and the Exodus, then 13 to 15 leave absolutely no doubt. Verses 13 to 15 are a, basically a direct quotation of Exodus 15. And Asaph is going to repeatedly and intentionally quote, and this is interesting, not the, any part of the slavery, but the song of Moses that he sings when they have come to the other side and had victory over the Egyptians. That's what he quotes. And you see, he's posturing himself not from the, the, the point of trouble. As he compares his trouble to the Egyptians' trouble, he now compares himself to the posture of victory from the Egyptians. I'm going to compare uh, the Psalm 77 to Exodus 15. It says in the first, or here in our passage, your way, O God, is holy. Back in Exodus, he said, you're majestic in holiness. In the Psalms, he says, what God is great like ours. Before he said, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods. In the Psalms, he works wonders. In Exodus, he does wonders. In the Psalms, he made known your might among the peoples. In the Exodus, the peoples have heard. He refers to his arm in Exodus, the greatness of his arm, the redemption of the people in the Psalms and the people whom you have redeemed in Exodus. And so he's comparing his present circumstances with the victory that God's people found with their help in their day of trouble in the past. So whereas he was comparing trouble to trouble, now his perspective begins to turn. And there's some features here as we move on even to verses 16 to 20 that are not mentioned in the Exodus. There's rain. There's lightning, there's thunder. And the imagery here is actually uh, descriptive and terrifying as you begin to read it. And th these are either providing more commentary on the Exodus where you get to see it a little more clearly than even the Exodus account, or this is picturing uh, the parting of the Red Sea as a great storm at night, but either way, this is terrifying. Listen to verses 16 to 20. Asaph on his bed is pondering, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. 
The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows as lightning flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Picturing parting through the waters, he says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God was a pillar of fire moving in behind them. And there's no footprints coming behind them in the sand. This is God who was there leaving no trace. It's what it means here when it says he was unseen. And as you read verse 16, you see that the water is personified. The waters were distress. The deep trembled. The word distressed means literally writhing in pain. That's how he pictures these great walls of water on either side as they're going through. And the deep is trembling, indicating great terror, which is ironic because the thing that they were most afraid of were these two great walls on either side. And you see that the thing that was terrifying was itself terrified, which says what about God? That he's the one standing above it, controlling it. He's to be feared. And this is the same reason the disciples were afraid in the storm going back to the Gospels. When Jesus is asleep on a boat and the storm comes in and the, the disciples cry out, Jesus, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus wasn't afraid. Jesus is asleep. The disciples were afraid. And when Jesus wakes up, what does he do? <clears throat> Calms the storm with a word. He says, peace, be still. And the, the Gospels say that the sea in that moment became like glass. And one sermon that I heard on this had a really helpful sermon outline where he's, he was talking about the calm, they went the calm before the storm, meaning that everything was fine, everything's going great. He said there was a calm during the storm because Jesus is asleep on the boat and he's not afraid and he's calm. And then there's the calm after the storm because the sea, the sea is stilled and made like glass. And then he adds one final point, the storm after the calm. Because the disciples were afraid when the storm was roaring, but the second Jesus calms it, it says they were greatly afraid. They were terrified. And why were the disciples more terrified after the storm than during it? Because they realized that the God who can control the waters was in their boat, and they were terrified of Jesus Christ. And the same God that was in their boat was there in the Exodus, controlling the waters commanding the waters and commanding the thunder. And the same God was there parting the sea during this thunderstorm. And this is the day of trouble. And I hope your mind is already moving off Asaph because as Asaph is hearing this and remembering this, Asaph's mind is moving off of Asaph. And he's picturing the, a real day of trouble. And you can picture the walls on either side and it's pictured at night. And Moses, the old man, is his leader with nothing but a staff going ahead of him. And God's glory, pictured as a pillar of fire, is coming up before. And as they move through the sea, if they turned around to look, we could see within their line of sight chariots from Egypt coming who were hours before their slave and taskmasters coming again to reclaim them and put them right back under the bondage of the law. That is a day of trouble. That's terrifying. And he says in all of this, the, the rain is flooding, the lightning is coming, the thunder is coming, and Asaph begins to realize in that moment, not a hair on a single head of any of God's people was, was hurt. And for him, he begins to realize that God is one who delivers in times of trouble. And so in the, the height of anxiety, the trouble passed away. And God's people saying, even in that moment, the victory psalm from the foreign shore, which is pictured in heaven, 
where we learn in Revelation that we will sing the song of Moses from all eternity because we have crossed through the sea, the red, glassy sea, and we stand and proclaim victory once and for all, for all eternity as God's people. This is the stuff that will calm your anxieties and put you to sleep. And his trouble passes away. And he can't help, in verses 16 to 20, on their stressful night, to compare it to his night, the storm that was raging around them is compared to his present circumstances, and Ross summarizes the entire point of the psalm with these words. He says, God's greatness overshadows our troubles. Amen. That's, that's Psalm 77. God's greatness overshadows your troubles. And pondering his greatness, you can find rest and peace. And so God's, well, you could say the sun's glory cannot be covered up by the moon. And God's glory and goodness cannot be covered up in the day of your trouble by trouble. And you can reflect on his past faithfulness, and when the trouble has passed, you will see that God was unchanging and was faithful through all of it. Your perspective is what we need to change. And so the psalm ends in verse 20, counting sheep, where God is pictured as a faithful shepherd. You see Psalm 77 begins in an anxiety-ridden, anxiety attack. He can't sleep. The height of his distress comes in verses 7 to 9. And in verse 10, he still can't sleep, but he resolves to change his med meditation, or we could even say change his medication, to thinking about the Lord of glory. By verse 20, he's so completely enraptured with the story of the Exodus that getting caught up in the faithfulness of God to them, he falls asleep. And it doesn't say that in the psalm, but I think that's what Asaph is leading you to believe at the ending here, that he finds rest, his anxiety is curbed, Again, I don't necessarily think this is what the Selah in this passage is doing, but if you notice, there is no final Selah in this verse, as it has in Psalm 3 or in Psalm 46, and it's almost like he never got around to it because he was so enraptured with the Lord of glory, or he never got around to it because he fell asleep. And just like that, the psalm is over, and he finds relief. How did he, how did he find relief? The answer is counting sheep. And so he says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Aaron and Moses. And I ask you, is there power in picturing the Lord of glory as a faithful shepherd? And the answer is absolutely there's power in this. I read a book many, many years ago. I've had to reread as a, a, a way of my own therapy and counseling myself. There was a, a counselor who wrote a book about Psalm 23. And he says in that that he prescribes Psalm 23 like a doctor prescribes medication. And so people will come in and they're troubled and they're distressed and they're anxiety ridden and he'll say, I prescribe to you Psalm 23 twice a day. I want you to wake up in the morning and I want you to read out loud Psalm 23. If you find yourself struggling during the daytime and you need a little kick, open your Bible and read out loud Psalm 23 and at night before you go to bed, I want you to read Psalm 23 and we're gonna meet again in two weeks and see how you're doing. And he would keep this up and it's amazing. He said the healing that comes from meditating on the goodness and graciousness of God and hearing from his own mouth, hearing from David that we lack for nothing in this world. He's our faithful shepherd. There, there's power in this. And so when you can't sleep, I recommend you count sheep like Asaph saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And with meditations like that, you see in real time the experience of Asaph change, and the tenor and the tone of the poem change, and the anxiety eases, and he begins to find rest, and by the end of the psalm, he's fast asleep. And so I want you to note one final thing. The trouble never goes away in the psalm. But the trouble is put in its proper perspective. Schaefer writes, in the end, the problem is not solved, but it rather dissolves in the light of a more profound experience of God, end quote. Would you please pray with me? Lord, this is the perspective that we need. God, uh, our, our anxieties are real. We know that they are common to mankind. They are a result of the fall, but thank you, God, for giving us uh, a means of relieving it. And we know that our trouble may be for a season, it may be for a long season, but Lord, may it never cover up your faithfulness to us and your glory to us. Teach us Psalm 77. Help us to remember this when we're pouring out our heart in the night watches, like Lamentations 2 says, uh, to not forget the means of grace that you've given us in, in prayer and in meditation and in scripture and in communing with the church and with fellowship, but above all, God, help us never to forget your past faithfulness to us. And to never forget that you are the good shepherd who makes a table for us in front of our enemies and who leads us in green pastures, God. Help us to remember this like medication for our soul. Teach us to see more and more your glory. We ask this in the name of your son.